Welcome back to the Chartwell Chronicles. I'm Colin Davis. Hi, I'm Brittany Atkinson. We have a fun topic today, which is starting to become a much larger issue when it comes to workers' compensation claims. It's Medicare and Medicaid. We're going to discuss how to navigate these claims, how we work through them, and pretty much uh, provide you with a lot of examples so that we can give you the best uh, best possible ability to understand how they, they flow with the workers' compensation cases we deal with. And just a reminder, um, Colin, uh, Chartwell is more than just workers' comp. We have admissions in 38 states, and we service out of 29 office locations. It's just, it's getting so big. I can't, I can't keep track of it all. Um, but this can all be located on our Chartwell website, which is updated um, and kept updated. It's funny that you mentioned that because we've been putting that in our past few podcasts and we'd like to announce today, actually, we're going to start expanding our uh, podcast to uh, some of the other states of the 38 that we mentioned. Um, we're going to bring some people on, talk about areas of workers' compensation in other states, but also general liability, some trucking, uh, and many of the other areas of uh, law that Chartwell deals with. Uh, so it's a pretty exciting news. We're probably going to start dropping podcasts uh, bi-monthly as opposed to monthly, but we're working on expanding. That's right, Colin. Uh, we've been receiving some really good feedback about the podcast from you know clients and other attorneys in our firm. Um, and in fact, we've been told that these episodes are really great resources for learning and expanding your knowledge. So we would love to break out into these other areas of law and jurisdictions within our office. Um, and again, if you have something that you would like to hear more about or have a different state or practice area that you would like to expand your knowledge on, please, please let us know. We are so happy to do that. We're so happy um, to bring other people within our office um, into this podcast. Um, and you know, we have a lot of friends to collaborate with now. So let us know. Yeah, it's going to be a blast. So uh, we're going to stay New Jersey centric some of the some of the episodes, but the other uh, episode in the month will be a much broader take. Uh, some will do compare and contrast to New Jersey. Others will just be uh, 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 talking about that practice area if it's something we don't normally do. So let's jump in today's topic of Medicare and Medicaid. You'll probably hear us also say CMS and HMS. CMS is uh, the correct, uh, the official term, I think, for Medicare when it comes to uh, the way they actually get billed out. And HMS is for Medicaid. But Britt, why don't you give us a little explanation of how Medicare works? Sure. So just before we get into it and how we navigate claims and issues that arise during Medicare and Medicaid um, when it, when, the, when it actually comes up in a claim, I just wanted to give a quick background. So CMS, um, like Colin just said, is Medicare, and it's a health insurance program that covers a very large majority of the state. And it covers individuals 65 years and older, and then some disabled individuals. And we'll get more into what, what makes somebody eligible um, if they are disabled for Medicare. Um, the Medicare Secondary Payer Act, it was designed to prevent medical providers, insurance companies, self-insureds um, from shifting the burden of medical costs to Medicare. And basically, the act was put in place to ensure that Medicare is secondarily responsible. So they're no longer the primary responsible party to pay for medical benefits um, if there is another insurance carrier that could be liable. And in this, in this, in this situation, we're talking about the workers' comp um, insurance carrier. Under this act, CMS has the right to recovery from you um, for the medical expenses paid out 
by Medicare that might be related. And when I say might, we're going to get more into that, um, that might be related to a workers' comp claim, because sometimes it's not always related um, and they're still trying to seek recovery. And we'll talk about how we can sort of mitigate exposure for that. Um, But what this act did is basically put the burden on the workers' comp carrier to consider both past medical payments and future medical costs. Um, And we'll talk about that more. Um, And then Medicaid, um, which is a little bit more simple to me than CMS, um, it covers, um, you know, unlike Medicare, um, it covers um, people um, based on their income. So if they make below a certain income, and I think it's different every year, um, then they become eligible for Medicare or Medicaid. Um, and it's basically just healthcare coverage, um, and it varies from state to state. So the rules and the eligibility um, and compliance rules are all different from state to state. Um, so we'll cover New Jersey. And in fact, if, if you are interested, we can certainly um, go through Medicaid with some other states and see how they differ. And, and you're right about that with the income level. It also pertains to family members in the home. So the uh, number is higher. So if it's a single person, it's a two, two people in the family, three in the family, the number increases. It's a percentage of, I believe it's a, it's a percentage of the poverty line. And I'm forgetting the number off the top of my head, but the number of people on Medicaid has greatly increased since the ACA uh, passed up. Uh, most people know it as Obamacare, but it's officially the Affordable Care Act. So I would also say that between both of these, Medicare and Medicaid, from when we started doing comp, they were not as prevalent seven, eight years ago as they are today. Um, and it, it, can, it can make a claim frustrating. And as Britt mentioned, there's with Medicare, you can be on Medicare one of two ways. One, you're receiving Social Security because you retired at 62 or older. The other is if you were found disabled by the Social Security Administration. And then you are entitled to Medicare. And this is an area I know pretty well. I used to practice uh, Social Security disability. And so you could have people that are 25, 35, 45 on Medicare. And because they're uh, eligible, they were uh, eligible for SSD. And when I mean eligible, I mean approved uh, with a notice of approval and are receiving it. So that usually happens as a result of an injury when you're that young. Sometimes the SSD is unrelated. But that's the other way you can get on it, whereas Medicaid is any age. And that that's and as Britt mentioned, Medicare, both Medicare and Medicaid will try to put every single thing they can and claim it's related to a uh, to a workers' compensation case. Like right now, I have a case and it's it's infuriating. We had a really low uh, MSA, which we'll talk about shortly and in full, but I, it's a back injury, and the person is prescribed methadone for a substance abuse issue. And the doctor happened, he happened to mention to the doctor that it helps his back pain. And now Medicaid, Medicare is saying that that is uh, related to work comp and it should uh, be covered by us and not Medicare. Did you ever see anything like that, Britt? Yeah, I mean, I see it all the time. I mean, the, you know, the petitioner is at the doctor's office, even treating for a compensable work accident, mentions something else. We get the medic, you know, we get a CMS conditional payment lien letter back in, and it has all of this unrelated stuff going on on it. Um, but before we get into sort of examples, I just want to get into how like CMS and Medicaid affect um the workers' comp case and how they really come up and sort of what our obligations are as both respondent and petitioner's attorneys and the workers' comp carrier and even the petitioner himself. Um, so 
the first thing that I want to talk about with, because this is probably what we see the most often, is when C- when someone is CMS eligible or they're receiving um, CMS benefits. And again, I'm talking about Medicare benefits. Um, we have to, we have an obligation to consider two things: um, past conditional payments, so any payments that were made um, yeah, made um, after the after the work accident, but before we settle a case. And then we also have to consider, under certain circumstances, future medical costs. Um, so before I get into future costs, when I say conditional payments, we mean the payments that were made after the workers' comp accident, but before we go to settle the case. So when we go to settle the case, we have an obligation to write to Medicare or access the portal, which has actually made it a little bit easier, and determine whether or not this petitioner went to any doctor's office and paid for medical care that could be related to the workers' comp accident with their Medicare card. And if they did, it's going to show up in a ledger by Medicare, and Medicare is going to say, before you settle this case, you have to pay us back this money. So this is what we mean by conditional payments. These are the liens that we're talking about. Right, and that could come about. um, And so currently the respondent is technically the one to bear the burden to obtain the CMS lien, but that didn't used to be the case. It used to be petitioners counsel who had to get the lien. And quite frankly, I wish it would go back to that because it's a lot easier because you have to get the Medicare card, uh, signed authorization, and then they have to send it to us and we get on. I mean, it's so much quicker when the petitioner goes ahead and does it. Although technically the burden isn't on them anymore. I totally agree with that. Um, it was easier because they had the information at hand to to perform it. Um, but I have to say, we're, we now have access to the CMS portal. It's very tedious, but we have actually taught our paralegals to um, how to basically go through this website to determine if there's a lien. So it's I, I actually don't mind it now that we have access to the portal, that the burden has shifted over to us because now we have control of it. But I do agree. I mean, they had the information on hand. They they had everything, you know, from the petitioner. It was definitely easier for them to do it. Well, I guess, I guess the annoyance I have is, okay, the burden is on us, but count, uh, petitioners to counsel can still do it. And some petitioners will do it because it's quicker, but others will be like, well, you got to get the information. It's your burden. And it's like, well, now we're going to drag out this settlement longer. But uh, one issue, like you mentioned, the conditional payments start from between uh, from the work accident till we settle, and that can pop up in a variety of ways. Petitioner could get hurt at work and go to the ER, and the initial ER visit is covered by Medicare because maybe the carrier didn't wasn't able to authorize the treatment quick enough. They weren't. It was too severe to wait for authorization. So there's going to be a, a bill there, even though the rest of the treatment was authorized, you can still have a CMS lien. Now, another case where it happens is we'll be treating a guy uh, authorized for a while. Our doctor will put them at MMI and they will decide to treat unauth- unauthorized and unbeknownst to uh, us. And sometimes even petitioners counsel petitioner will be Medicare eligible and then they'll go for treatment and all of a sudden we'll get a massive lien that we have to deal with. And that that's the, that's the more frustrating of the two because it's easier to, to deal with the lien when it's just from the date of the accident. We know we're going to cover that. But the problem comes when it's a, we have an MMI, but they seek additional treatment and it's, it's then uh, all paid for by Medicare. Yeah. And we even see it with just, you know, cases that are just outright denied. 
um, they, you know, per our statute, the petitioner, if we deny medical treatment, they do have the right to go out and seek their own treatment. And a lot of times they pay for it using Medicare. Um, so what happens when we try to close the case out and settle it for a nominal section 20, we get a $40,000, you know, Medicare lien that we now have to deal with. Um, so we'll talk about more how we can deal with those. Um, but I do want to just get into the other, um, obligation that the you know, workers comp that all parties really have to consider Medicare's interests. And that would be future medical care. Um, per the Medicare secondary payer act, Beneficiaries and claimants are obligated and have a responsibility to consider and protect Medicare's interests. And those words are written into the statute. Um, so when we go to sell a workers' comp claim, um, typically what we would do is prepare a CMS-approved Medicare or CMS-approved set-aside. And basically, this is sort of a tedious process for which you would evaluate and estimate any potential cost to cover a certain injury for petitioner's projected life expectancy. Um, and typically you would have a vendor do this. And I know like ExamWorks does them. Um, there's a bunch of different vendors that will do them, but it involves collecting a ton of medical records. They want everything under the sun. Um, it's they, they definitely don't make it easy to come up with these figures. And it's a very tedious report. And you'll also hear us what I mentioned earlier, MSA. This is what I was referring to, a medical set aside. And this is frustrating because years uh, they apparently don't give zero MSAs anymore, as uh, I think we're learning. I'm, I, it's frustrating because you used to be able to get a zero uh, Medicare set aside for future uh, – future medical treatment needed related to our injury. But now the uh, Medicare comes back and it's like, well, they'll probably need a yearly MRI. They'll need some medication management and maybe an orthopedic visit. So $20,000 MSA. Yeah. And so I think it's important to also touch on when you actually need to consider a set aside. So we're talking about you're going to settle a case. Um, typically, um, if you're going to settle a case pursuant to section 20, the case is getting closed out permanently. So you're not keeping it open. There's no reopener rights. You're getting it closed out fully and finally. Um, but so what do you do about someone who's on Medicare, eligible for Medicare, but now has to, might have some future treatment that might be necessary down the road, which may or may not be related because now we're section 20 in the case and obviously there's causation issues. So you need to consider a set aside if the Medicare recipient at the time of settlement and total settlement is greater than $25,000. So you have a Medicare rep recipient and the total settlement is $25,000. Now, Colin, what, I mean, from your perspective, because I know there's, there's a lot of different takes on this. What does the total settlement mean? In my mind, it means any and all benefits paid out plus the settlement amount. So if you paid out $6,000 in medical benefits, $2,000 in temp benefits, and now you want to try to settle for $20,000 on a section 20, to me, that's over the $25,000 threshold. So when I was a uh, petitioner attorney, the my understanding was, and I think it changed, I believe a memo came out too and sort of loosely changed it, but it used to be any under $25,000 and we didn't care what uh, um, they didn't necessarily inc always include the medical benefits, but then that changed and we include the medical and everything's now included. I agree. So it's if it's if it's a two thousand dollars worth of treatment and you're some for some reason section 20 for twenty three thousand, you're, you're probably going to need a medic uh, set aside. 
most likely, uh, a lot of the times these set-asides come into play with reopeners because petitioners will have get a settlement for, I don't know, 15% of partial total on a back injury that wasn't very severe, but there was a bulge. There's no new treatment. You've, you used to not count the, re, uh, the original settlement in it, but now we do. I was just about to mention that because that's the first thing that pops in my head is the reopeners. You know, we get these 15% of partial total settlements and then they come back to reopen. They're now on Medicare and they want, you know, another bite at the apple. And there's obviously causation issues because we're on a reopener. They had no treatment. And so we want to throw them $2,500 to get rid of the case on a section 20. And now we can't do that because we're over this threshold. Right. And it's frustrating to say, hey, I want to pay you nominal money, but I'm also going to have to pay you a, a Medicare set aside of $20,000. So it, it takes a lot of thinking and we'll, we'll get into that shortly, uh, how we would manage something like that. But yeah, sometimes I'd like to just suggest that we, you know, settle on a very, very small, the, the tiniest amount of increase on an OAS just to sort of get rid of the case again. So when it does come back around, we can say, look, they, they, there was no material worsening to begin with. Um, and you know, there's Medicare issues and, but you know, obviously there's no guarantee they wouldn't come back around again. But before we get into that, um, anything further, Colin, um, the second, the second circumstance under which you would need to consider a Medicare set aside is petitioner is reasonably expected to become a Medicare beneficiary within 30 months of the date of settlement. And the total settlement is greater than $250,000. And this would come up with social security disability. So I'm going to hand it over to you, Colin, because I know you used to practice that. Yes. So this is the one that frustrates me because uh, I fully agree you need the Medicare set aside on the first example in pretty much every case. No question. This is the one where petitioner's councils will call and be like, oh, the guy filed for social security disability. you got to go get a set aside. And it's like, first of all, let's take out that he filed for social security disability because that he's not going to get approved within 30, 36, 30 months. Let's be honest. The wait time when I last stopped, it was uh, they're required to get you a response to the initial letter in uh, four months. After that denial, you file for reconsideration. That's another year. Then it takes about two to two and a half years to get to your uh, actual hearing, and then they decide. So the months, you're not going to hit it. The other thing is uh, the $250,000. Most of these cases are not the, the monetary number with medical records, temp, and the settlement isn't even close to $250,000. That was my thought on these. I mean, for, for a workers' comp case to go above $250,000, I feel like it's very rare. I mean, if, if, the, case, if the case is over $250,000, the guy's already on SSD most likely because the injury was severe enough anyway. So it, 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 I think that's essentially what it is because the wait times, one, put you out over 30 months, uh, two – the 250k here i mean even with a back a, ba a bad back surgery and settlement you're you're flirt you're not even necessarily flirting with 250k between the surgery and th uh 30% of partial total i agree so that that's the one that they, but, but petitioner counsel love to harp on that it's, and it's just like why do you want to extend the life of this case when we can get rid of it before they're on actually on Medica uh, medicare and it, it, it sometimes they, they drag it along and then all of a sudden they're on Medicare and we're stuck with the MSA. Yeah. And so Colin already touched on this a little bit, but what makes it really difficult to settle with these MSAs is they come back 
significantly, like significant values. Just, I mean, some of them are $700,000 when we're trying to settle a case for $30,000 on a section 20, we make it completely unreasonable. Let me give you an example. The one I mentioned earlier, I was, I was sitting on a set aside for $40,000 and we got new medical records because they asked us to, and the guy's on methadone for opioid addiction, not related to his back injury whatsoever. And apparently in the note, he mentioned it helps his back pain. So Medicare decided in the new set aside, we'd have to pay $450,000 to get the set aside because they now say that medicine is related, even though everyone knows it's not. And and you can't compromise it down because they ask for more medical records and it only tends to hurt you. Yeah. And it really just, it really, you know, makes it very, very difficult for us to settle cases. Um, something that I have seen, um, there's two things actually that I have seen companies do because I think everyone's sort of trying to think outside of the box just because of how difficult this has become, um, to settle cases. Um, I've seen companies annuitize their MSAs. So when they go to fund them, they'll, they'll fund an initial amount and sort of annuitize it, which saves a significant amount of costs, um, I have also seen, um, and I do this all the time, um, in the event of an untimely death of a petitioner after we settle a case, where does the remaining MSA amount go to? So I always make sure I specify that it goes back to the carrier because to me, it's not settlement money that would have otherwise gone to the petitioner. It's really just to satisfy Medicare's interests. And that's a great point. And to that, the Medicare set aside, it can be done two ways. It can be self-administered, meaning the petitioner does it, or a third party administrator does it. Most people want it to be third party because it's safer, it protects everyone, because the money in the MSA is only to be used for the body parts specified in the work injury. So if it's a lower back injury, you're only allowed to use that Medicare set-aside money for that back purpose. Like Brittany said, that's why after the person dies, we should get the money back because they're not treating anymore. And it's not settlement money. That money was held just there to treat X injury and no other body part. Exactly. And just to get back to this too, for those um, who are new to Medicare set-asides, the way that they would work is the insurance carrier, the employer, the respondent would fund the amount of the Medicare set aside. And it's, you know, it is negotiable um, on how, you know, you can fund it. Like I was just talking about the annuity. Um, Once that money runs out, CMS basically says, okay, we've approved of this set aside. Once that money runs out, we will agree to kick in and start paying now for that approved injury. And you mentioned the annuity, and that's that's a that's a big trend, uh, and I think it's great for us and uh, to sell the client on some of these higher uh, higher MSAs because it's like, look, you just put X number of seed dollars in to get to this number each year and whatnot. But I get, um, I think we have full control over how we fund the MSA as long as we're paying the proper amount. I think it doesn't matter how we fund it, but some petitioners councils severely object if we say we're going to annuitize it. Do you see that as well? Oh, I get it all the time because I've seen two with large awards um, them being annuitized so that the respondent, you know, they've gotten creative. They can save money if they if they annuitize these awards. And I even get the objection for that. Um, so. I, I don't understand why, because it doesn't change the way that it operates for the petitioner side, um, but I get it all the time. Right. It, it is frustrating. Now, wh- why don't we talk a little bit about Medicaid, which is, a, like you said, a little simpler 
Colin, before, before we get into Medicaid, I wanted to bring this up because I thought about this this morning because um, we're talking about trends, but there's an interesting trend. Um, companies starting to prepare these evidence-based MSEs. Um, and I have had countless conferences and discussions with different vendors um, that prepare these, but basically these are um, MSAs or set-asides, I, su- I should say, that are not approved by CMS. Um, so what the vendor does um, is say, listen, we will prepare this set-aside, and if CMS comes back to seek additional money or they disagree with the amount of the set-aside or the terms of the set-aside, we will agree to indemnify you and or take that fight against Medicaid, Medicare for you. Um, my... My problem with these, and I haven't actually had one put through yet, but there's a couple of them that are in the works on on very large cases. Um, Why would a company agree to indemnify you for this? But I mean, for me, it's CMS approval takes a long time. Don't you agree with that? I mean, they take they take their their sweet old time to approve of these these set asides. Um, So these evidence based MSAs that don't have to be approved. Um, they can be done quicker. They won't hold up our settlements. We can control them. They speed up the process. What do you think about them? I, I'm ha- I'm concerned about having a judge a judge approve of them. Well, it's worrisome because what does indemnify mean? In this, like, I obviously we know we would pay, but what does it actually mean? What are we on the hook? What could we be on the hook for? So that's the that's the scary part of it. The other thing is, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, once an MSA is approved, but officially, well, don't you have to have it signed with? It's like signed. You have to have it put through within a certain amount of time, or you have to get a new one. Correct. Yeah, they have expiration dates. I mean, I just had one that expired. It was a 90-day expiration date, and you know the parties just couldn't get it together to settle. Um, definitely not. Definitely not the fault of, of us. But well, but that's the worst part because you could have had a really low MSA, and then because you had to resubmit it, Medicare comes back with a higher number. So you don't want to request that MSA essentially till everything is buttoned up because you are on a timeline. And as soon as we get it, I send it to counsel and I get me the settlement paperwork, get this signed. I want it through because we have we, we I don't want to risk getting a higher number. Exactly. But, yeah, no, I just wanted to mention that before we got into Medicaid. It, it is a scary thing for sure. And as you mentioned, Medicaid is a it's a it's a different animal, but it's an easier animal. Uh, we're seeing it a lot more, like I said, because of the ACA, a lot more people are part-time it changed the health insurance rules to anybody under 32 hours is uh part-time so a lot more people are on medicare or medicaid and the same thing like we said uh with the medicare liens the only way to get a medicaid lien is on is unauthorized treatment because if the carrier is authorizing it we know but the same thing can happen you go to the er treat with uh, medicaid we pop up a lien at the end we also just have petitioners who are not paying attention and they're going to the doctor, they're handing them their Medicaid card. They're not mentioning that it's a workers' comp case. And now they don't even realize it, but Medicaid's paying for the treatment that should be paid by the workers' comp carrier. And I heard this, uh, well, I guess it's not recently at this point, but one of the uh, petitioner attorneys that I have a bunch of cases with, he was telling me that during COVID, people would go in for into the hospital for COVID, get the COVID treatment, and they'd make a, make a mention, oh, my back's hurting. The hospital would give them PT while they were in there, and it would just rack up a, a lien for a, a, an unrelated issue, but it's actually a work uh, workers' compensation body part. 
Wow. That's a whole, that's a whole other slew of issues right there. Uh, uh, trust me. I, I know when I said it, I said to him, I said, thank God this isn't one of our cases, but yeah, it, it isn't late. It, I don't want to call it carelessness, but I mean, if you know you're going for a work injury and the carrier has been authorizing it, it's been frustrating to get later down the line. Oh, here's whatever the lien is because they decided to go uh, simultaneously treat on their own. Yeah. And so, I mean, I would like to say it's carelessness, but a lot of times there's a language barrier. I just feel like sometimes these petitioners don't truly understand the consequences of handing over that Medicaid card and or Medicare for that matter. um, And saying like, Oh, well, these, this is my insurance. This is, this is what I'm using to pay. So, I mean, it, it does nothing but muddy the waters, especially when these liens come back huge. Thankfully, I don't see huge Medicaid liens. Um, most For the most part, they're a couple hundred dollars and they can be easily taken care of by, you know, negotiating with counsel. But, I, but you know, it's nothing like Medicare, but... Well, I had a case and I, I don't want to go into any details about it because it was very intricate, but we had a very massive HMS lien. <laughs> I'm sure you remember me talking about it. So it, I it does remember ex- that one. <laughs> Does it, it? It can happen with the certain amount of unauthorized treatment. So um, let's talk about lean compromise now. We can kind of merge the two topics together here because we see both Medicare and Medicaid liens. And unlike private liens, which are fairly easy to compromise and uh, the parties really just want some money paid back, what is your thought on Medicare and Medicaid lien compromise? I feel like it's so difficult to do. It can be done. And with with the proper effort, um, on all parties parts, it's, I mean, it's definitely doable. It takes forever. It holds up our settlements. So if it's not a huge amount, I find often that the parties are willing to negotiate, um, and, or try to satisfy them without it. I've even done Colin. I don't know if you do have done this before. Um, if I'm going to settle on a section 20 and you know, the issue is, um, a dispute on the lien, whether it be Medicare or Medicaid, I've had petitioners counsel agree to hold the money in escrow and then they will argue with Medicare or Medicaid um, on behalf of the petitioner because it will put more money in their pocket. Um, And, you know, they'll work to compromise lien. But they, I mean, I'm doing one right now and there's actually a vendor working on it. It's a, a huge Medicaid lien. And it's, it's, I think it's been six to eight months now and we still have no update, no status. They're impossible to get a hold of. It's just, it's, we're sort of at their mercy to get these numbers down. Yeah. That's the, that's the biggest difference between uh, Medicare and Medicaid. Medicare, as soon as you have the information, you will get the lien and you can get the lien today. Yeah. And that's the beauty of the portal. Now I have, I don't really have much experience with Medicaid, um, only because that burden really still is on the petitioner side to obtain. That's correct. And when I was doing petitioner work, it they, they it was much easier. I mean, I have a case that should have settled at the end of 22 that's still lingering because counsel's waiting for an HMS lien. I had another case where it was a it was a hand injury and it was a broken wrist, but the lady then got unrelated carpal tunnel syndrome years later. They put all of it on the lien and counsel kept writing saying only 4,000, only 2,000 of the 4,000 should have been related to us. And we ended up coming to an agreement where we'd split the, we'd, we'd split the, uh, 
we'd split the total lien just to get rid of it. Now we paid a couple extra dollars, but then it, it got the carrier off the hook quicker instead of just dragging it on, paying for future court appearances and potential uh, trials. Because even though I think the judges can be much more uh, liberal in waiving some of these unrelated body parts in the liens, they don't seem very willing to. So that was my next question for you. And I guess this is something I haven't really dealt with, but have you had um, any success in getting a portion of a lien waived as opposed to compromised by Medicare or Medicaid? If it goes through full trial, meaning petitioner's testimony, all lay witnesses, doctors, experts, and the judge makes a ruling, then yes, I have seen it. But my understanding is, and talking from people who did comp longer, in the past, judges used to be like, all right, it's a hand injury. I'm waving all this back stuff. It's not related. And they used to say the judges would do it all the time. But now the judges, I just don't see it happening. No, I don't either. And in fact, I, I, I mean, the judges that I appeared before, I, could, I just I don't see that ever being a success. Although it would be super nice so that we didn't have to deal with the whole process of getting a lien compromised. Even when there's noticeably, like obviously things that are not related to the work injury on there, it still takes a, a huge amount of time to get these things removed. Well, I, I had a COVID vaccine on somebody's HMS lien. It's like, that's clearly not related to a back injury. Like they, they, they basically throw it at the wall and hope it sticks. And that's a problem when it comes to settlement, like with, with the MSAs, it's much easier. It's you're still negotiating the same way, but with Medicaid, you know, as we mentioned, to get on Medicaid, it's a it's an income issue. So you're already dealing with a lower income person anyway. And then say it's a say it's a hand or an arm injury, which is a much lower settlement number than a back injury. And we're settling Section 20 for say seventy five hundred dollars on the arm, but we have a HMS lien that comes in at fifteen thousand dollars because they want to say. The arm caused this shoulder, this caused this neck in, that's caused the neck injury, and we can't get it kicked out, and we have to satisfy the entire lien in order to settle the case, even though it's unrelated. We can't just pay the body part that's ours, and that's hard because at $7,500, you take out the fee, you take out the doctor's report, petitioner doesn't have enough money to satisfy the lien. Yeah, and we see it all the time, and that actually brings up another good point. Um so typically when we write to Medicare and or Medicaid, and this really speaks to both of them, um, you will get what um, you'll get an interim lien back. <clears throat> and the interim lien is basically to date, this is the lien, but it is subject to change. You typically cannot get that final lien right for that final lien until after you've settled the case. And so sometimes that final lien will come back at a different amount of the interim lien. Have you ever seen that? Yes. And uh, it's frustrating because based on the, the paperwork, it says this this interim lien number is good for X number of days, but the final is done because we ask how old's the portal letter all the time. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't make any sense. The same amount of treatment. So if it says three doctor's visits and the first one comes back a $2,000 lien, it's, and then you have to get a new one. The same three visits are there, but now it's $2,500. There's zero logic to it. It just increases because, well, the government will never give you back money. But it, it, like it, it's, it's tough because you don't know that Medicare claim, tries to make the argument their, uh, their uh, interests aren't protected. And that's what you mentioned with the MSAs that aren't fully uh, Medicare approved, which is why it's worrisome because 
who is who, what are we indemnifying people for? And it's that's a that's a big risk. Exactly. But I mean, with regard to the final or interim lien, um, especially in a Section 20, when you're trying to close the case out permanently, I always like to suggest that um, it's very specific. Should that final lien come back at a different amount, where is that money going? Um, and obviously, it's always my argument, like, listen, this this is not a final lien. Should the final lien come back, I want on the record and or in the affidavit that petitioner understands that they could be responsible for the difference. Absolutely. And that's the argument I make. And usually that is the successful argument. There are outliers where the judge will say, maybe I'll have you contribute something. We'll split, but that, that's a rarity. It's usually all on petitioner's burden. But uh, what, what do you see, like I mentioned earlier, where the uh, lien is greater than the overall Section 20 settlement, but all the lien was for unauthorized treatment, meaning, and the petitioner did not request the treatment. They just went unauthorized. They didn't actually follow the statute. Do you see petitioners paying 100% of that lien like, like I think they should? So it's really difficult and it's really twofold because you have a denied case. They didn't request treatment. There's We should not be on the hook for unauthorized treatment, right? I mean, that's what the statute says and that's, what, that's, what, that's how we would prevail in a trial. But we want to get these cases settled. We want to move them. We don't want to have trials. We want to we want to close as many cases as we can for the least amount of money possible. So in that situation, we're never going to get rid of the lien unless we move forward with a full trial. So I think at that point it become you know it comes down to negotiations and how, honestly and how strong your denial is. I mean, if you have you know a ninety five percent chance of prevailing in a trial, then maybe it is worth it to take it take it all the way so that you don't have to get stuck with that lien. Um, but under, under different circumstances, I mean, it's probably up to the parties to negotiate like, Hey, there's a 50, 50 chance of trial here. Um, respondent will pay half petitioner will pay half and then they'll throw him an extra, I don't know, a little bit more money just so he can pocket something as an incentive to, to settle the case. But other than that, I don't see how else you get rid of it. Yeah, it, it is frustrating because, like you said, it's treatment we should have never had to pay for, but now we're paying for at more than a value I think we should. I mean, if I'm contributing, the most I would willing to contribute without a judge saying so is maybe 50%. And that's only if the lien is in like, say, $3,000 range. It's low. Let's get it out of the way. But some of these liens are fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. It's like, I'm not paying half of that unless... Well, and think about it, Colin. We're saying, oh, we're only going to pay 50% and they're going to pay the other 50%. But the award amount goes up now just so that they can pay the 50%. So it's it's sort of it's sort of a wash. And it, it just, again, I mean, the difficulty in getting these cases settled is is just, it's significant. Yeah, and, and, and it, it is, and I, and we fully understand the frustration, but there is still a benefit. I don't want people to think there's not a benefit to doing it this way because uh, it is close from the Section 20 uh, portion, it is closing it out permanently. Yes, we might be paying a little bit more right up front, but we're not signing a, a small increase on an OAS, which gives petitioner another little bit of money, but what more importantly, it, it extends their reopener rights for another two years from the last benefit. 
And in that two years, something could something could legitimately happen. The disc just gets further deteriorated. Uh, they they opted against surgery twice, but now all of a sudden they want the surgery. It's been re recommended, so it, it helps to buy out of it, even if it if it goes against what you want to do in the sense of oh we don't want to pay this unauthorized lien. But from a cost benefit analysis, to get at, get rid of the claim, close it. I. We do it. We obviously these are case by case issues, and we go through in depth with the client when we talk about it and say this is the pro and con of each side. But there still is a huge benefit to get rid of it, even if we're paying more of the lien than we believe we should. Absolutely, and I think too, it just it's it, it when I say like thinking outside of the box, like that. I mean, obviously that's our job too, and to get creative. And so there are different ways um, to close out a claim without having to get stuck with you know, these huge liens and or these huge set asides. So it's always something to bring to us um, so that we could strategize together. Don't you think so? Yeah. And the, the biggest thing, the earlier we find out someone is on Medicare or Medicaid, the better. Because A, we can prevent any unauthorized treatment or get that bill paid for pretty quickly so there's not a lien. And also it just knowing it today versus three years from now and getting a lien thrown on your desk as we're settling is a totally different animal. Exactly. I mean, I've been, you know, taking testimony in support of a settlement. And, you know, one of my questions that I always ask, are you receiving Medicare? Are you receiving Medicaid? Are you eligible? Are you a beneficiary? I ask all these questions and I have gotten the response. Yes. And we do not have any um, paperwork that confirms that we secured and protected Medicare's and or Medicaid's interest. And so the entire settlement is blown up now. So it does pay to, to find out sooner. And obviously that's not our burden. I mean, we can only do so much. I mean, really petitioners attorneys have to be responsible for that. And there is a scenario where petitioner can have both a Medicare and Medicaid lien, which makes things all sorts of fun. Yes, that's really fun when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, Medicare and Medicaid pay um, at fairly low rates. So um, if treatment is paid for by them, um, I always like to say that, you know, we would have probably paid, had to pay at a higher rate. Um, but that's, you know, that's another topic for another day. That's the one thing that uh, I usually talk to about with clients and say, look, this is a, a Medicare, Medicaid lien. So they're paying at pennies on the dollar. Had this been a private uh a private healthcare lien, they want close to the full amount back. I mean, they'll compromise it, but they'll compromise it maybe down to 70%. And that number is still going to be way over. So while you're paying a bill, you don't want to pay, you're paying it a, a fraction of the amount you would have paid if we had authorized it. So that, that goes into the analysis of why we're willing to make that payment. It's a topic that's not going anywhere. If anything, it's uh, going to keep going up because, uh, the uh, more people seem to be going on Medicaid and uh, it's it's just a fun topic. We'll probably revisit this in the future. I'd like to see how some other states deal with Medicaid, too. So that might be an interesting. That's what I was just about to say, because I know how we deal with it. I know how the judges deal with it. I'd be curious to see the other states because I'm sure they, dif they, they differ, just like with Pennsylvania and us, compromise and release. They have it. We don't. But uh We'd like to, again, thank you for joining us for this episode and please uh, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get them and be on the lookout for uh, more episodes coming soon from different states. I think uh, 
we'll be hitting up uh, Tennessee, some Mississippi, some Florida, you know, the other areas that the website tells you where it is. So please go to chartwelllaw.com and subscribe to the Chartwell Chronicles at any location where you get your podcast. And thanks for joining us.